You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. Today we're continuing our look at the book of Ruth. We're in the second part of chapter 2, and you're going to see that kind of the big question that we're going to be focusing on this morning as we look at this portion of Scripture is the question, is God paying attention to me and my needs? And it's possibly a question that you've asked a time or two during the course of your life, and we're going to be looking at that today if we, uh, as we look at Ruth chapter 2. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to verse 14 of Ruth chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 14 down to verse 23, which is the end of the chapter. So Ruth chapter 2, starting with verse 14, this is what it says. It says, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and give it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of your word together and uh, notice the different things that you were doing in the lives of Naomi and Ruth, some people that over the course of the past few weeks, we've had the opportunity to get to know a little bit better as we've been studying this book. And Lord, we pray that as we continue our look at what you reveal in this portion of Scripture, that we would look at it, obviously in its historical context, thinking about some of the things that you did in the lives of these people, but that we would also connect it to the bigger picture of what you're accomplishing in this world and throughout the narrative that you communicate in your Word. We know, Lord, that your goal is our redemption. Your goal is to redeem lost humanity, and you're accomplishing that. And you show us themes related to that all throughout the course of this book. 
So, Lord, we pray that our eyes would be open to the truth. We pray that you'd encourage our hearts. We pray that we would see lots of ways in which the experiences that these individuals went through apply to us as well. And we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, so this was actually uh, Thursday evening, uh, I, was, I, I had been asked to speak at a church in Shemokin, Pennsylvania. I know some of you know where Shemokin is. Do, do many of you know where Shemokin is? It's kind of a unique town name, isn't it, right? Like, you just feel like you could call your town something cool if you say, you know, where do you live? I live in a place that's Shemokin, right? You know, it's just really cool, right? And the church basically had reached out to uh, the mission board that I have the opportunity to serve with. And uh, they just wanted to talk to somebody about their health. They wanted to talk to somebody about their redevelopment as a church. We recently helped that church find a pastor. He's been there about a year and a half. I've been up there a few other times. And I was eager to meet with them. And so I came up and and had the opportunity to speak there on Thursday night. And if you're not familiar with Shemokin, this is kind of my assessment of that town. It's a town filled with wonderful people and delicious food. All right, so that right there makes it a special place. And by the way, I like all kinds of foods. I think I talk too much about food. I think I think too much about food. I wish that that was a character trait that I had been able to find a way to change in my life by this point, but now I've kind of given up. And I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily going to change. And I'll tell you what, I like all kinds of food, but my favorite foods I've discovered come from the mining regions of Northeast and Central Pennsylvania. That is my favorite food. I've eaten lots of kinds of food. That is my favorite food. I don't think that's going to change either. And uh, Shemokin is one of those towns where you get some of that stuff. Shemokin's also a town that's had a lot of struggles. Uh, Many people that are living there live in poverty and like legit poverty. Uh, A high percentage, and I asked the the group that I was meeting with, I think I had read this online at one point, so I asked them to confirm this to me, but a high percentage, possibly around 30% of homes in that community have been abandoned. So imagine if like every third house in your neighborhood was an abandoned house. And those abandoned houses, many of them have just been allowed to deteriorate. So it's very interesting because many of them are row homes that are attached. So you have a nice home attached to an abandoned home attached to a nice home, and you'll just have, that's kind of the way it is through the community. I asked them, I said, I I think I read about 30% of your homes are abandoned here, and they said, we think it's more. So they might be right. And like many areas, the epidemic of drug use has also impacted the community, and so that's something that they're really wrestling with as well. So certainly an interesting opportunity for the church to do ministry there and definitely demonstrates the need for the gospel in that community. And after meeting with the church and talking about different things related to their church health and redevelopment, I started walking to my car. I had parked about a street down. Street parking is very hard to come by in Shemokin, but I found a spot about one street down. So I was walking back to my car. And as I did so, I passed by one of those row homes that was on the same side as the church building. It was essentially just a, you know, just a few houses down, maybe three or four houses down from the church building. It was a chilly evening, and as I passed by one of those homes, I happened to look over to my left, and there were two young boys, I think they were probably about eight or nine years old, standing in the doorway of one of the homes that I was, I was passing by, and the door was wide open. Again, it's chilly, not the type of night that you want to leave your door wide open. And as I passed by the house, I heard an adult in the house yell out, 
close that door and get inside. That's what the voice yelled out, probably their mom or somebody else. But she yelled out, close that door and get inside. And as they did, I happened to notice when they closed that door that all the glass on the front of the door was all smashed. And when you look at the, the door, it looked like it had been kicked in at some point. A door, that's the impression I got, that somebody had kicked that door in at some point, and the door sort of worked, and all the glass was smashed on it. And in general, as I looked at the house, the house looked like it was ready to be condemned. You know, it looked like one of the houses that was abandoned, except people were living in it. And I mentioned this to the pastor because I had a meal with him following all of that. And he informed me that it's widely suspected in the community that that's a drug house with lots of people coming in and coming out. He said the cast of characters tends to change there all the time, and they don't know how people are actually living in it. And I I was thinking to myself, I'm like, all right, um, there's kids living in that. Right? And, and so that was Thursday night. Now it's Sunday. And I have to tell you, I've been thinking about those, those children ever since, wondering what their lives are like. And this is kind of how it's been phrased in my mind as I've been thinking about it. I was able to walk right by that crumbling building, get in my car, and drive away. And at least for the moment, I think about those kids, they're stuck there. Right? They're stuck in that context. I wonder if they feel stuck or if this is something that they are just used to because it's just been the theme of their life, and so maybe they don't think much about it. But my perspective as I looked at it, I, thought, I felt bad for them because I'm like, it feels like they're stuck there in a context that looks very unhealthy and maybe even possibly dangerous. And it made me wonder. I was like, all right, do those kids feel overlooked? Do they feel forgotten? Uh, I, and I also wondered how common their situation is in the community. You know, is that a common thing? I don't know the answer to that. Now, I bring that up because that's something that's been fresh on my mind this week, because depending on the season of life we're going through, I think sometimes for us, whether you're a young person, whether you're an adult, whether you're somewhere in between, I think it could also be easy for us at times to maybe feel overlooked, to feel forgotten, maybe to feel stuck in a context that we're in. I think it's a pretty common question for people to, to wonder about if, if God is noticing us or if God is noticing our needs. I think we think about these things. Maybe that's a question that you've even asked recently. You know, maybe that's something that you've wondered. Maybe that's something that you debate at present. Or maybe you can just simply recall a, a, a time earlier in your life where that was a question that you asked regularly, where you wondered, is God paying attention to me? Is God actually noticing my needs? It's not an uncommon question to ask. One of the things that I think the Lord goes to great lengths to try and convince us of is the fact that He does notice us, and He does see what we need. And I think He demonstrates that in a variety of ways. Uh, I, I think He's well aware of our immediate needs, and you and I can all acknowledge that we have immediate needs You know, there are things that we need in the present that we would say, no, they're genuine needs. But I think the Lord also is is looking with an eye remaining focused on the long-term things that we need most. So there's immediate things that obviously we need, but there's long-term things that are actually a bit more important than some of those immediate needs. Even though both are important, the long-term things are a little bit more important often than the short-term things. And oftentimes the things that we think we need aren't what we really need at all. I can think of you know, at certain seasons of my life where I thought I needed certain things for my health, for my well-being, for my stability, even just to, to meet my preferences, and then discovered that really wasn't what I needed at all. In fact, I needed something completely different. And it can be hard to understand what needs are real needs sometimes while we're in the midst of our struggles. And I think it's also 
um, hard to think of God's compassion sometimes when, when we're in the midst of our struggles, because sometimes we just get to a spot where we feel a little desperate. And when you look at the book of Ruth, we're given a very interesting picture of what it's like to go through all of those emotions and all of those experiences and what it would have been like in a period of time that was similar to ours in some ways and different from ours in some ways. But when you go throughout the book of Ruth, you start noticing that the compassionate heart of God is intentionally being demonstrated to us through her story and through the events that are taking place. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of this book to help us understand a variety of things, including the heart of God, the fact that our Lord has a compassionate heart. And you can see the heart of God demonstrated in in a variety of ways in this book, but one particular way that you can see this is, is you see his character demonstrated in the lives of those who walk with him closely and trusted in him completely and use their circumstances to actually demonstrate the heart of God to other people. I was really excited yesterday when so many people in our community, many people that we didn't know were here on the property. And those of you uh, that helped out yesterday, uh, kudos to you. So grateful that you had the opportunity to do that and were willing to do that. Because I love when the community has the opportunity to interact with people who love the Lord, trust the Lord, and are walking with the Lord. And even though I would look at an event like we had yesterday as something that I wouldn't say is necessarily overtly evangelistic, it really is evangelistic in nature when you think about it. Because we had the opportunity yesterday, as I, our estimate was somewhere around 500 people from the community showed up yesterday. And so you look at that and you say, all right, that's 500 people that had the opportunity to interact with people that were kind to them, to to interact with people that were generous toward them, to interact with people that were were ultimately trying to demonstrate the heart of Christ to the people that the Lord allowed them to interact with. I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think when you go through a book like the book of Ruth, you see God's heart demonstrated in the actions and in the attitudes of his people. That's one of the major ways that the Lord demonstrates who He is and what He's like in this world. He demonstrates that through the people that He's rescued and He's redeemed. Now, a few minutes ago, I read from Ruth chapter 2. I read verses 14 down to 23. And I don't know if you noticed this. You probably did. It certainly stands out to me as well. But I think when you look at those verses, we're given a powerful glimpse of what it looks like when God notices us. I think we're given a powerful glimpse of what it looks like when God actually says, I'm going to make sure to meet your needs. And he demonstrates that in that portion of Scripture. Now, if you remember uh, from our, our previous weeks looking through this book, at this point in Ruth's story, the Holy Spirit had been impressing several things upon her heart, and she had been taking action on the things the Holy Spirit had been instructing her to do. At this point in Ruth's story, the Holy Spirit had impressed upon her heart to leave Moab. So that was the country, not far away from Bethlehem, but that's where she grew up. She grew up in Moab. In Moab, they worshipped these false gods. In Moab, they had practices that were not in line with what the people of of Israel and Judah practiced. And, um, And Ruth purposed in her heart, as the Spirit of God led her to do so, to move to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. After Naomi's husband died and after Ruth's husband died, they were like, you know what, let's go back to Bethlehem. Now, for Ruth, it wasn't back to Bethlehem. This is Bethlehem for the first time. But Naomi had grown up there, and that was her home area. And so at this point, 
you know, the Holy Spirit was leading Ruth to stick with Naomi, to stick with her mother-in-law, and they moved to Bethlehem. In the process, you also have Ruth expressing her allegiance to the Lord. And keep in mind how different this would be and how significant this would be. She grew up worshiping other gods. She grew up in a different context. And she says to Naomi, your God will be my God. And what she's saying is, I believe that your God is the true and living God. Your God's going to be my God. And where you go, I'm going to go. And I'm going to stay loyal to you and I'm going to stick with you. And I'm making this promise before God. And if, and if I break this promise, basically, may he strike me dead. That's basically what she was saying. She's saying, I'm not going to leave your side. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to be loyal to you. And your God is going to be my God. And I'm going to be loyal in all circumstances to you because you're someone that the Lord brought into my life. And so that's what Ruth is doing. And most people would have expected Ruth to return back to her family of origin, but she said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm sticking with Naomi, and I'm going to move to Bethlehem, and she did. The Holy Spirit also, and we saw this last week as we were looking at the first part of chapter 2, the Holy Spirit also directed Ruth to begin gleaning barley in a field that belonged to a man named Boaz. And the Spirit prompted Boaz to show Ruth extraordinary favor. Just to show Ruth extraordinary favor, she was gleaning in that field. And that manifestation of favor continues in the passage that we're looking at today. We're told that Boaz, and we just read these verses together, but we're told in this portion of Scripture that Boaz invited Ruth to eat with him and the reapers at mealtime. Sit down, eat, enjoy. You know, he provide, Scripture tells us he provided bread, he provided roasted grain, he provided wine for her to enjoy. He's providing these things, and he's saying, listen, you don't have to sit at a distance. You don't have to be off you know, somewhere else in some corner of the field or whatever. You can sit down with me. You can have this meal with me, and I'm going to make sure that you have plenty to eat. In fact, the Scripture tells us he made sure to give her generously more than she could naturally eat, and I believe he's doing this all on purpose. You can see as this chapter unfolds, he's a very intentional guy. He's very intentional. He's purposely doing this. Why do you suppose he would give her more food than she could naturally eat? Do you want to see, like, if, if she's, like, gross? Do you think that's what he was thinking? Like, I wonder if she's just, like, gross and will try and, like, eat this all. You know, like, is she, is she gluttonous? Do you think he was testing her gluttony? I think he knew what she was probably going to do with that extra because he knew her backstory. He knew that she was, that she was staying with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and I think he also knew that part of the reason she was in that field was to take care of and provide for her mother-in-law. And so giving her extra like this was a way in which she could actually take that and bundle it up and bring it home. So he knew when he fed her extra, he was actually feeding her and he was feeding her mother-in-law. And he gave her that extra. He made a point to generously give her more than she could naturally eat. She scoops it up, brings it home later on for Naomi to enjoy as well. It's a beautiful thing. But then after the meal, what did the scripture tell us? It says, after the meal, that, that when, it, when this, this was now when it was time for Ruth to continue gleaning, right? So she's been gleaning from the start of the day, and now they have a meal together at the midpoint. Now she is supposed to go out and continue gleaning. Boaz does something very intentional, and he waits until she's out of earshot. And he instructs his workers to let her glean even among the sheaves. And he also tells them to intentionally pull out some of the already gathered barley. He says, pull that out of the bundles and just leave it along the way. Now, why is he doing that? Well, he's basically saying, listen, I want to make sure there's extra for Ruth, and I want to make sure she doesn't have to search 
for scraps in the field. Like, let's give her the good stuff, and let's make sure that she has a ton of it to leave this field with today. Now, gleaning was hard work. Did anyone here enjoy working outside and, like, working on the land and stuff? Uh, I once took a test. This is when I was in high school. And uh, it was one of those tests. Do you ever take a career test? Um, sometimes they're kind of funny, the results that it gives you, right? Now, I grew up in a coal mining town of, of Carbondale, but one of the things it recommended to me, it said, John, you know what you ought to consider doing? You should be a farmer. And I remember looking at that, and I, I, that was so funny to me. I was like, ha, <laughs> farmer. Oh, my goodness. What, what a silly thing for this to suggest. You know, one of my favorite things to do is, like, to just be outside, like, finding a piece of land to make better. That's one of my favorite things. And now, as, as an adult, I look back at that, and I think, maybe that wasn't too far off, you know? Like, like I, I, don't, I don't have enough land to farm, but what I do have, I kind of farm in my own way. You know, and I got to tell you, one of my favorite things to do, some of you know that I do this on Mondays if the weather is nice. I usually turn off my phone. I'm going to sort of apologize for being hard to reach on Mondays, uh, but I take Monday off and I try and check out a little bit digitally. And so I'm a little hard to reach sometimes on Mondays, but I usually turn my phone off and I go outside and I figure out what do I need to do around this house that has me outside. And sometimes even if the weather is bad, I just want to be outside. And I'll tell you, at the end of the day, I come in after working in my yard or working around my house or doing whatever, and I feel tired, but it's that good tired, right? That tired where you feel like you used your body in a good way, and my mind feels joyful, and my body feels good, and sometimes my skin feels sunburned, and, uh, and, but I've just been outside breathing outside air all day. And I'll tell you what, I, I tend, I'm not a great sleeper, but I'm a really good sleeper on a Monday night. On a Monday night, after working outside, if I can stretch that into a longer stretch of time, I usually sleep pretty well, and I think that outside air helps. And I look at this, and you, you, you know, Ruth goes back to gleaning here. Gleaning was hard work. You know, you picture somebody bent over, picking up stuff off the ground all day. Imagine what your back would feel like. After working outside all day, doing all of that, leaned over, picking up stuff off the ground all day long, from the early morning to, to late at night, or late, not late at night, but later in the evening as the sun's going down. You know, you're, you're doing that all day long, gleaning and gleaning and gleaning, but Ruth was willing to do it. She was willing to do it. I, when I look at this book, and you probably notice this too, when I look at this book, I see, I, very clearly, I see a woman of character. She was a woman of great character. I think there are lots of things that demonstrate her character in this book, but one of the various obvious, one of the very obvious examples of her character that's being demonstrated here is her work ethic. You could tell a lot about a person's character by their work ethic. Scripture makes it very clear that she was internally motivated to do the work that she was called to do. She sought the work and didn't just wait for it to come to her. Do you ever meet people that just seem to like wait for it to come to them, and then other people that say, no, I'm going to go get it? She was one of those people that says, no, I'm going to go get it. She didn't just wait for it to come to her and land on her lap. She said, I'm going to go get it. And when she gleaned in the field, again, she's starting early in the morning. She's working until evening. And then when you look at what the Scripture describes about the process she's going through, after gleaning, so this is after spending the entire day doing this. Just imagine if this is how your day was. This would be, this would be hard work. This is how you get calluses on your hands and, and um, you know, dirt under your nails, Right? After she was gleaning, it says that she beat out and she winnowed what she had gathered, and she was able to collect 
it tells us an ephah of barley. Now, that's not a measurement that you and I, you know, measure, like when you, when you go and fill your, your car with gas, or you're like, I wonder how many ephahs this Hyundai can take, you know? Like, no one ever said that, right? Ever? Frank, have you ever said that? You've never said that, right? Um, how much is an ephah? It says that she gathered an ephah after working all day, right? She was able to collect an ephah of barley. In our measurements, that'd be between five and six gallons. You want to measure it that way. It'd be about five and somewhere between there, like five or six gallons. And it would have been enough that she could have fed her and Naomi for a couple of weeks with that. So it's about two weeks worth of food. And if my math is correct, I was really curious this week, and I was like, wait, so how much would that weigh? I grew up in a grocery store business, so I know a gallon of milk, because I used to have to stock the dairy case at my dad's grocery store, and I know that a gallon of milk is about eight pounds. It's r- roughly eight pounds. And so I'm like, all right, how much would, you know, if this is like five or six gallons of barley, how much would a gallon of barley weigh? Like, how much weight did she have to carry when this was all done? This would have been about 25 pounds of barley when it was all said and done, if my math is correct. So 25 pounds. And keep in mind what she did with this. So after working all day, gleaning, and then winnowing what she had gleaned to get to the good stuff, now she's got a 25-pound something, satchel or basket, or I don't know what she carried it in. She had to now carry that home. So you want to experiment with this, just go to the Go to the hardware store and buy a a 25-pound bag of grass seed and then take a long walk carrying it and see how sick you get of carrying that that bag of grass seed. After a while, you're going to be like, this is annoying, right? uh, But yet she did it. And in fact, she did it without complaint. She does it without complaint. So she works all day, winnows what she's gathered, packs it up plus the food that she had left over from lunch, and carries it home, however far away it was. And I'm assuming it's not like a minute or two. It's probably a little bit of a distance, because she had to go, you know, she's going through all these fields to get back to where she and Naomi live. She carries it all back without complaint. And imagine Naomi's joy if after, you know, the end of this long day, she sees what Ruth has brought home to her. You know, as Ruth brings this home, some food that's prepared and some resources so that they could eat for the next couple of weeks. I'm certain she was thrilled. And the scripture tells us that Naomi looks at Ruth and she's like, all right, tell me everything. Like, where have you been? You've been gleaning all day. Where have you been this entire time? So Ruth tells her, and she tells her that Boaz had shown her kindness and had allowed her to glean in his field. And I, thought that, I think this brought even more joy to Naomi than the food, because Boaz was, a clo- Boaz was a close relative of hers. And one of the men who, according to the practice of leverit marriage, you ever hear that? Leverit marriage. Lever comes from, um, it's a word that means uh, like husband's brother, like leverit marriage. Uh, he, he was a, she says he's a potential, he's a redeemer, like he's a re- potential redeemer of our family. Now, this is, I'm going to show you something from the book of Deuteronomy in a second, because this isn't a practice that we practice now, but under the old covenant, this was something that was practiced. They practiced something called leverit marriage. And in Deuteronomy 25, that's explained for us. Now, I'm going to bring a couple verses up here on the screen, but I'm going to read more than this. And in Deuteronomy 25, starting with verse 5, let me just read this for us. It says this, explaining this practice. It said, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. 
Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead, his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And then when you read verse 7 down to verse 10, it says, And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. That's what it says. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now, we look at that and we're like, oh, the whole sandal thing. That, that's, but basically what it was was an indication in that context that you weren't willing to care for your brother's widow. And here's another thing. What does Scripture tell us? You know, it, like you and I, we could call ourselves great, wonderful Christians if we want, but what, what's one of the truest tests that Scripture gives us if we actually have a heart that's in line with the heart of Christ? The book of James tells us our religion is worthless if we don't take care of the orphan and the widow. You don't take care of the orphan and the widow, your religion is worthless. Basically, you're a fake Christian. You're fake. Or you're extremely immature, and you need to have your sandal pulled off and maybe spit at a little bit. That's kind of what it's getting at. It's saying, if you're not going to take care of your brother's widow, this was the provision in that time. This is the way it was done. It's different from how we do it, but this is how leveret marriage worked. And so in this practice, what are we seeing? We're actually seeing a demonstration of the compassionate heart of God not unlike what we saw in the portion of Scripture that we looked at last week that made the provision for people when they were in a state of poverty to be able to go and glean in the fields of other people. That was a provision at the time. Uh, Leviticus 19 gave us that provision. So when you look at Leviticus 19 and you look at Deuteronomy 25, you see multiple provisions being made under the Old Covenant whereby those that were destitute could be cared for or those that were in a spot where they had been widowed could be cared for. God was codifying into the laws ways in which women would be cared for and a lasting name would be made or a lasting legacy could be made for a family name. And when Naomi spoke of Boaz being a redeemer here, she's talking to Ruth about this, she had this provision in mind. She was thinking about Deuteronomy chapter 25. And we're about to find that that while Boaz was a, a close relative, the Scripture reveals to us that he wasn't actually the closest in the line of redemption. There was another person that was actually closer in that line. But if that relative was, that was technically closest wasn't willing to follow through on these obligations, we're going to find out that Boaz was willing to follow through. If the other guy won't do it, I'll do it. Boaz was a stand-up guy. Let me ask you something here. Um, you're, you're watching some of this take place. And you're, you're going to see an idea come to Naomi as the mother-in-law. She's looking at Ruth, and she's thinking, the wheels are turning in her mind. She starts thinking about something. And I'm just going to, you don't have to answer this out loud. I'll be able to know by the expression of your face what your answer is. 
Um, but let me ask, have you ever tried to arrange a date between two people that you thought would be good together? Plenty of you have, apparently. Hmm, I see that in your face, right? There's some people have a knack for doing that, and uh, some people who should probably take a break from doing that, right? <laughs> Usually, that is a well-intentioned activity, right? Usually, that is a well I think everybody that does that has good intentions, I think, right? Or most people have good intentions when they do that. Um, now, my wife is away this weekend, Okay, she is hanging out with her sister and my sisters. They do this a couple times a year. They get together. So I'm about to talk about her, and no one's allowed to tell her that I said this. She will discover this when she listens to the recording of the message. Hello, Andrea. It's good to see you. Myself and the congregation say hello. Um, Usually is a well-attention activity, and I think my wife would be willing to confess to attempting to do this more than once with people she cares about, including and especially our children. As they've reached adulthood, I, I think that if she could just, like, pick your spouse, pick your spouse, pick your spouse, you know, if she could do that, she'd be like, and my work on this earth is done. I think she would feel very complete and satisfied. And you know what? She's, she's very wise, so I, I affirm her decision to do that if she wants to. But Ruth's comments, as she's talking about all these different things here, you're going to notice she seems to activate Naomi's matchmaking reflex. Naomi was like that. She's like, Naomi's like, oh, wait, you're in Boaz Field, and then the wheels start turning. She's like, interesting, my daughter-in-law. And I say that jokingly because I actually believe the Holy Spirit was behind all of this, right? Putting the ideas in Naomi's mind, providentially guiding Ruth, putting ideas in her mind as well. I believe the Holy Spirit was behind all of this. And so upon hearing about the kindness of Boaz toward Ruth, you have Naomi here. She starts crafting a plan. And the first part of her her plan, and she tells us here, right, it involves encouraging Ruth to keep gleaning in the field of Boaz. Keep going back there. Keep working there. Day in, day out. Let him see you. Let him see your character. Let him see how you work. Let him interact with you. You keep going there. I think that would be a safe place for you. You, That's the field you go to. Go there every day. You know, go, go, go to Boaz's field. Stay there through the barley harvest. And you know what comes after the barley harvest? The wheat harvest. So stay there during the wheat harvest as well. Keep gleaning in that field. And you know what Ruth did to her credit? One of the hardest things in the world to do. She accepted Naomi's counsel. There are people that give us counsel that sometimes we should listen to that we don't. Naomi was a gift to Ruth. And Naomi gave Ruth counsel and Ruth said, you know what? Okay. And she continues to accept the wisdom. She continues to accept the counsel of Naomi. And it leads to some amazing blessings in coming days. And when we look at a passage like this, I think there's an obvious appreciation that we could develop for the historical realities of what was taking place. Because it's a beautiful and it's a fun story to read. But I think we should also keep an eye on the part that that these events are actually playing in the redemptive history of humanity and the ways in which the heart of God for His children is being revealed because there's a bigger story at play that's being illustrated here. Naomi refers to Boaz as one of the redeemers in their family, in that leveret marriage arrangement. When the Bible speaks of redemption, it's speaking about purchasing the freedom of something that was captive or buying something back that was experiencing harm or detriment. The word, the word redemption, when you and I hear the word redemption, that should be one of the sweetest words in the English language to us 
because of the redemptive work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So when you hear redemption, that should be a, a word just hit your mind and hit your ears. It's just such a sweet word because of what Jesus has done for us. We were lost, but he found us. We were foreigners that he made part of his family. We had no lasting name, so he gave us his own name. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, who shed his blood on our behalf, Scripture tells us we are redeemed. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And the book of Ruth keeps coming back to the concept of redemption in an attempt to help us understand this important spiritual reality. And I love the other spiritual concepts that are illustrated in this portion of Scripture that we just read together. In Ruth 2, 14 to 23, you see these things outlined. But one of the things here it tells us about is, you know, you have that moment where Boaz invited Ruth to dine with him. She invites him, or invites He invites her to dine with him. And I couldn't help but be reminded of the words of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Because Jesus said this in Revelation 3, 20, and think about what he's inviting you and me to do with him. Revelation 3, 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. How is he describing fellowship with him? Like the sharing of a meal. Like the sharing of a meal that he provides for. Jesus seeks to have the kind of friendship and fellowship with us that a meal demonstrates. Isn't that one of the ultimate acts of hospitality that we show one another? We share food together. We share time together. We share conversation together. That's the kind of relationship Jesus is inviting us to have with him. And that's the invitation to share a meal that Boaz gave to Ruth. It's a great reminder of this. And in fact, you know, throughout the Old Testament, there are different people that are intentionally positioned throughout the Old Testament to give us a picture of the heart of Christ. And Boaz is one of those people. I also love the demonstration of spiritual maturity that's given to us in this portion of Scripture when you observe the life of Boaz. Some people claim to believe the teaching of God's Word. I meet a lot of people that claim to believe the teaching of God's Word. But I also meet a lot of people that claim to believe what God's Word says, and then they live their lives as if if their goal is to do the bare minimum of whatever God requests or requires. It's like, how can I live on that edge of doing the bare minimum that still seems like I'm a follower of Christ, but it's like, "Ah, I kind of want a foot in both sides of this world. Boaz wasn't like that. He wasn't required to provide extra barley for Ruth, was he? That wasn't a requirement. He had met the requirement, Scripture said, let those in poverty glean in your field. So he's doing that. But what does he do? He provides extra, right? His goal was to go above and beyond when it came to living out and teaching God's Word. He wanted to go above and beyond. He provides extra. And as the story unfolds, what we're going to see is that, and, and hear this phrase. We were talking about it a little bit on Wednesday night here at Bible study. But as the story unfolds, we'll see that joyful obedience to the Lord, that was a trait that characterized Boaz's faith. Joyful obedience to the Lord. And I, when I look at stuff like that, I think, all right, could the same be said about me? Am I a man who is joyfully obedient to the Lord? Could the same be said about you? Are you people who joyfully obey what the Lord said? One of the marks of our spiritual growth, one of the marks of our spiritual maturity will be as we get to a spot where we become joyfully obedient 
to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has rescued and provided for us. One other thing that I want to point out from this passage, and it's found in Ruth 2.19. I'm going to bring it up on the screen for us so we could see it. Naomi makes this statement to Ruth. She says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now, those words were spoken of Boaz when Naomi saw the effects of his kindness and the effects of his generosity that Ruth had been shown in this context. But these words remind me that our lives can serve as a visible testimony of the kindness and the generosity that we've been shown through Jesus Christ. Because the gift of salvation has been secured by Jesus and offered to us, and because a future in his kingdom has been guaranteed to all who trust in him, we can clearly say that he has taken notice of us. You and I can look at, at, at what's happened and what he's provided for us and what he's done for us. We could say, you know what, he's taken notice of us. You know, Naomi looks at Ruth and she says, look, blessed be the man who took notice of you. Well, when we look at the effects of what Jesus has done for us, we can truly say, he's taken notice of us. He's taken notice of me. Our lives can serve as a testimony to others that he's also willing to notice them and to bless them in the same way. Let me say this as we finish up this morning. Because there's something powerful being illustrated here in this portion of Scripture, I hope that we notice it. If you're wrestling with the question of whether or not God is paying attention to you and to your needs, I hope you'll take encouragement from this portion of Scripture, from the story of Ruth and, and the, ways in, the ways in which it helps illustrate the story of redemption that's woven all throughout Scripture. This is something that the Lord wants to catch our eyes with. He wants us to see this. Something else that we should know is this. God's timing is perfect. I recognize that you're probably praying for certain things. There are certain things that I'm praying for as well. And you know what the Lord likes to teach us sometimes in the midst of our prayers? Patience. Patience. Patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a fruit that He wants to bring forth from your life and my life. And sometimes I pray for things for a long time, and then in the Lord's timing, I get to see what his answer is. But in the meantime, what is he teaching me, and what is he teaching you in your moments like that? He's teaching us to trust. He's teaching us to be patient. He's teaching us patience while he answers our prayers. And here's the other thing. He may stretch your faith while you wait for him to intervene, and that's not a bad thing. If he's stretching your faith, that's something that... (laughs) You know, it's kind of like any time in gym class when our gym teachers would ask us to stretch, I'd always be like, oh, do we really have to stretch? Can't I just pull muscles by doing things the wrong way? Why do I have to stretch, right? Like everybody complains about stretching, and then you realize, oh, no, it was probably good. It hurt in the moment, but then it was good long term. And when our faith gets stretched, that's not a bad thing. He has your greater good in mind, and I think that's something the Lord wants us to be confident of, that he actually has our greater good in mind when he's stretching us. He knows what you think you need right now. But he also knows what you really need long term. Our ultimate needs are met in Jesus Christ. And if your present day circumstances are being used by God to point you to him, you are blessed indeed. And that's something that I think this portion of scripture helps remind me of, and I hope it reminds you of that as well. The Lord sees us. The Lord meets our needs. The Lord notices us. And ultimately, we can trust in him and trust that his timing is perfect as he meets these needs in accordance with his great and perfect plan. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you so much for reminders like you've given us as we look at a portion of Scripture like this today from the book of Ruth. Lord, it's, I find this book so enjoyable to, to read through and to think about the implications of. I think it's such a special book. It's, it's something that helps us to understand more about the way you compassionately work with your people. It's a book that illustrates your redemptive plan for humanity. You give us pictures of your compassion. You show us a picture of redemption that's ultimately meant to point us to your son, Jesus Christ, who is our rescuer and our redeemer. And Lord, we pray that if we've been struggling to trust in you, if we've been going through some things right now that at times we wonder, do you even notice me? Do you see my needs? These things are real, Lord. I'm wrestling with these things. Lord, we pray that as our faith gets stretched in the midst of that, that we would say, Lord, I'm learning to trust you. Thank you for the patience that you're giving me. Thank you for the strength that you're giving me as my faith is stretched. Help us to to be able to to give you thanks, not just for the end result of what you're bringing us through, but for the process through which you're bringing it to, to pass. We pray, Lord, that we would thank you all along the way. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that You desire to communicate with us. You didn't have to inspire this book to be written down. You didn't have to give us your word. That's something that you chose to do as a demonstration of your grace. So, Lord, we're grateful for it, and we pray that we would be people who value it and who, through the strength and wisdom and guidance that you supply, that we would apply these things to our day-to-day lives, that we'd live these things out in front of our children, that as they watch us go through seasons that stretch us, that that would bolster their faith as well, and that ultimately we would be men and women who bring glory to your name in the context in which you've placed us and in the generation in which you've given us the privilege to live. So again, Lord, thank you for these examples. Thank you for this day. Thank you for noticing us, and thank you for being present with us right now. And we commit ourselves to you at this time. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. If you're tired of parenting advice and news headlines that are more confusing than assembling IKEA furniture, we've got just the podcast for you. My dear friend Abby and I are here to help you navigate the parenting roller coaster. Should your kids be on social media? What should you tell a friend facing an unplanned pregnancy? These are just some of the many questions we tackle on our podcast. Subscribe to The Real Deal of Parenting wherever you find your podcast.